Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Alan Fine, the podcast editor of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. Today it is my great pleasure to speak with Dr. Nicholas Hill, who is professor and chief of the Pulmonary and Critical Care Division at Tufts University Medical Center. He and uh, several of his colleagues are the authors of an article appearing in this month's Annals, Perspectives on Oral Pulmonary Hypertension Therapies Recently Approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. So let's speak with Dr. Hill. I wanted to speak to Dr. Hill about why we needed these drugs. What do they add and what do we need to know about them? So I'll let Dr. Hill open up with that. This is Nick Hill in Tufts Medical Center in Boston in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care Medicine. And the document that we published in the White Journal arose from a meeting of experts in pulmonary hypertension, all of whom had participated in the clinical trials that brought these newer medicines onto the market. The idea was to share our experience with the different medications and talk about what they add, what we think presently about where they should fit in, and also uh, some of the missing information that would help us as we go forward in trying to understand these things better. So the background here is that pulmonary hypertension, at least the group one, according to the World Symposium classification, and that's idiopathic and uh, connective tissue disease-related pulmonary hypertension primarily, is a progressive and ultimately fatal disease if left untreated. And for the past 20 years or so now, we have had medical therapy. Prior to that, there were no known effective medical therapies other than calcium channel blockers in occasional patients. So we now have nine different types of medications on the drug armamentarium, if we include the three most recent ones, and they fall into three main categories. And those categories include the phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors, and these are agents that are well known to virtually everyone who pays attention to the media because it seems we have advertisements for them every five minutes or so, especially on sports programs, but they include sildenafil, which otherwise is known as Viagra and when used to treat pulmonary hypertension, Rivadio, and also Tadalafil, which is known as Cialis, or when used for pulmonary hypertension, Adcirca. This agent works by inhibiting the breakdown of cyclic GMP, which is an important intracellular second messenger that leads to vasodilatation of blood vessels and inhibits proliferation. The new member of that pathway is Riosigwat. It was approved about a year and a half ago now, and it works a little differently than the phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors. It is a stimulator of cyclic GMP production and it works independently of nitric oxide. It gives it a theoretical pharmacological advantage because the PD-5 inhibitors work by inhibiting cyclic GMP after it's been produced, but if you don't have sufficient production of cyclic GMP, PD-5 inhibitors are unlikely to be effective, whereas the Rio Sigwat works upstream and actually produces cyclic GMP, and so it might be effective in more people so that's a potential advantage to keep in mind. But the drug was 
tested in a couple of different randomized controlled trials that were published in the New England Journal, I believe, in October of 2013. And one trial, the patent one trial, looked at the use of Riosigwat in idiopathic and other group one forms of pulmonary hypertension and showed a number of different significant benefits, the primary outcome variable being the improvement in six-minute walk distance, which was in the range of uh, 40 meters and was a pretty robust improvement. However, the PD-5 inhibitors when previously studied in more or less the same way, also yielded improvements in six-minute walk distance to about the same extent, and therefore it's hard to argue that there was any efficacy benefit attributable to Rio Siguat exceeding that seen previously with the PD-5 inhibitors. Nick, I just wanted to ask you, do you think any one of the potential pathways that are discussed for pulmonary hypertension have more importance than another? Well, I think most people in the field would agree that the prostacyclin pathway is probably the one that is most likely to yield significant improvements, even in very sick patients. I might as well, since you bring that up, I can talk about that pathway now. That pathway was based on a discovery from the late 1970s by John Vane, who got a Nobel Prize for his work. They are derivatives of the uh, prostaglandin pathway and via cyclooxygenases and prostacyclin synthase actually produces prostacyclins, and they're potent vasodilators and anti-proliferative agents. And the first pulmonary hypertension agent, epoprostenol, given intravenously, was approved in 1995. So, you know, that's how we get 20 years, but it was the only one available for a number of years thereafter. And it definitely made a big impact on people, improving functional status. And I think there's reasonably good evidence to show that it improves survival as well. In fact, it's the only agent to this day that in the randomized portion of the trial, it actually did show a survival advantage over the control group. But the problem with epoprostenol or, or Flolan is that it has to be given intravenously. So you need a central catheter, transcutaneous, usually a tunneled catheter is used, but there's always the risk of getting line infections, and also uh, it requires a fairly competent patient to manage it properly, so it's not for everybody. The other agents that are available include Iloprost, which is given by inhalation in the United States. It's also available in Germany, not only by inhalation, but also intravenously. In the United States, by inhalation, it's supposed to be given at least six times a day or more because it's got a relatively short half-life of about 20 minutes, and the duration of action is maybe in the range of an hour and a half or so. So it has to be administered quite frequently, and that's difficult for a lot of patients. So it actually hasn't seen a tremendous amount of use because of its need for frequent administration, but it's an effective agent, and the improvement in six-minute walk distance in the AIR trial that tested it in Europe maybe 15 years ago now showed it somewhere around a 35-meter improvement in, in six-minute walk distance, so not that much less than, than the Rio Siguat we were talking about. And then the, the other agent is triprostinil, and that is an even longer-acting form, uh, three- to four-hour half-life, and it is given intravenously, subcutaneously, by inhalation, and then the drug that was recently introduced, approved in December of 2013, is oral triprostinil. When given by infusion, either intravenous or by subcutaneous, the, the brand name is remodulin. When given by inhalation, it's Tyveso, and now with the pill form, it's known as Orenitram. 
I think the introduction of a pill, prostacycline pill, has created quite a bit of excitement in the field because previously we've had to use either these infusion routes or inhalation, and I think the holy grail really has been the pill form. But there are some limitations in that people taking it tend to have more, especially gastrointestinal side effects, than when it's given by the infusion rate. So the trials that have been done, the so-called freedom trials, have not shown as robust an improvement in six-minute walk distance as was the case with the infusion routes. It takes a long time to get up to what would be considered a therapeutic dose with the drug. So there are concerns about whether it is as efficacious as when used by the infusion route. On the other hand, if you have patients who are unable for one reason or another to use infusion prostacyclines, it's something that is available and can be added on to other therapies, although the two FREEDOM trials, there were two FREEDOM C trials, the C standing for combination where it was used in addition to other agents, showed that the improvement in the six-minute walk distance in the 16-week trial, looking at the combination, did not show a significant improvement Let me ask you, does the nature of the pulmonary hypertension, the underlying disease, influence what choice of therapy is? I know we have a standardized classification, yet in my mind, pulmonary hypertension derived from connective tissue disease, for example, and what used to be called idiopathic pulmonary hypertension don't seem to be the same process. So perhaps they are, but I, I want to hear what your thoughts are on it and whether you shade your therapy or make different choices depending on the cause of pulmonary hypertension. Incidentally, it is still called idiopathic. It used to be called primary. <laughs> uh, but you're absolutely right. Idiopathic differs from connective tissue disease-related. And within the category of connective tissue disease, it also depends on what the specific connective tissue disease is with regard to the natural history of the disease. The the most common associated form of connective tissue disease with pulmonary hypertension, of course, is scleroderma, especially the limited form. And on average, patients with scleroderma have not responded as well to our medications as people with the idiopathic form of pulmonary arterial hypertension. But there are exceptions. In my own practice, I have some patients who have gone on for many years and have clearly been responsive to the medical therapies. But uh, again, on average, uh, they they don't respond quite as well. Uh, It's also true that there are different phenotypes, if you will, within idiopathic, uh, where we see people who have very reactive disease to vasodilator challenges and other patients who don't react at all. And that has some implications for treatment. If they're very reactive and they're not too severely uh, affected by the disease, we generally will start with calcium channel blockers. And although it's probably in the range of 5% of patients who respond well, uh, I, I saw one just a few months ago and started her and followed up on her in clinic uh, just a week or two ago, and she's doing fantastic on, uh, you know, moderate doses of diltiazem now, and knock on wood and hope that she continues. Yeah, that's a wonderful thing that happened. Yeah, and they can go on for for decades like that. You can even get that medication in a pharmacy. Yeah, that's right, without a prior authorization. (laughs) But 
But anyway, uh, when it comes to treating these people, though, we don't know enough about how our medications work or how the diseases differ so that we use more or less the same approach, whether it's idiopathic or scleroderma. There are some people out there who would say, well, you know, endothelin receptor antagonists are better for scleroderma patients and PDE5 inhibitors are better for idiopathics, but there's actually no evidence to support that. And my own approach is to use more or less the same types of drugs and the same diagnostic approach uh, in both categories of disease. Probably the major determinant in how we approach these patients is the severity of their disease. And uh, there is a guideline out there uh, from the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology Foundation, that uses a two-dimensional paradigm where on one end you have people who are relatively well-preserved with regard to their right heart function and their functional status is pretty good. They've been fairly stable. Their BNP levels are low. Their echoes look pretty good. Their hemodynamics are okay. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got people who are very severely impaired, especially with regard to right heart function, and they've got uh, poor functional status, rapidly progressed disease. They have uh, high BNP levels, an echo with a dilated hypercontractile RV, and poor hemodynamics with a high right atrial pressure, low cardiac index. And those are people who are at high risk for progression and death in the not-too-distant future. And so the people who are on the milder end of the spectrum will generally get started with oral therapy. Uh, in the past, we've used either phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors or endothelin receptor antagonists. And there's no evidence to say one is necessarily better than the other, but we, Do you uh, think one acts more rapidly than the other? or um, I have seen some pretty rapid responses to PDE5 inhibitors, especially in people who have reactive pulmonary vessels. You know, within days, sometimes they feel symptomatically better. So you can see that with the prostacyclines. You can see very rapid responses. I don't think the endothelin receptor antagonists work quite as rapidly on average. But when they've been on these drugs for couple of months, three months, uh, I think the ERAs and the PD-5s get you about to the same place on average. And some people respond very well. Some people, you know, most people, it's kind of like a bell curve. Most people, sort of a middling level, of the average 40-meter improvement in six-minute walk distance. And there are some people who don't respond initially. And then, you know, you would add additional medication and if they continue to deteriorate, then maybe eventually you get to an infusion prostacyclin. For the people who, when you first see them, they're very severe, infusion prostacyclins are really the treatment of choice unless there is some contraindication to their, their use. But, but really the severity um, is, is an important determinant. And then, as I mentioned a moment ago, different centers have different preferences as to you know what drug they use. There are some that only use Flolan, and then there are others who like subcutaneous troprostanol or intravenous troprostanol. And again, I don't think there's any convincing evidence that one is necessarily better than another. People point to that survival advantage with Flolan that has never been recapitulated in any subsequent trial, but the people in the Flolan trial were much sicker than the ones in more recent trials. They had a 20% fatality rate in the control group, whereas 
the fatality rate is usually under 5% in most of our more recent trials, and you're just not going to be able to show a mortality difference. So I don't, I don't think that necessarily means that flolene is a better drug than, than triprostanil, but the fact of the matter is we, is we don't have enough evidence to convincingly say one way or the, the other, you know, which drug is better. I, I want one uh, final area, Nick, I wanted you to comment on is, is there a reason ever to start two or three drugs pretty much uh, concurrently? Would you ever consider that? I know some people are proposing that, and uh, what what is your uh, trigger to start therapy in pulmonary arterial hypertension? Uh, well, well, I'm so glad you asked that question because the results of the AMBITION trial were reported initially at the ERS meetings in Munich last September, and uh, they were really exciting, dramatic findings. And this was a very interesting trial design because previously we have, we've been using combination therapy for a long time, and if you look at the REVEAL database, you know, a very large 3,500 patient database uh, accrued from 40-some expert centers in, in the U.S., about 50% of patients were on combination therapy in that, and 40% of them were in dual, and 10% were on triple therapy. So we are not strangers to combination therapy, but the the approach had been to start with a single drug, and as I said, if the patient has milder disease, usually you'd start with a PD-5 inhibitor or an ERA, and then you would add the other pill from the other class maybe two or three months down the road if the patient <laughs> hadn't got better. Well, the AMBITION trial looked at upfront therapy, not add-on therapy later on, but upfront they started either a combination of Tadalafil or ambrosentan, and I, I didn't say much about endothelin receptor antagonists, but ambrosentan and bosentan have been the traditional blockers of endothelin, which is a vasoconstrictor peptide released from endothelial cells. And long ago, the endothelin levels were found to be elevated in patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension, both in the circulation and in the tissues, and blocking that was shown to be beneficial. So bosentan has been around for about 14 years, is a twice-a-day drug. It has about a 10% rate of increasing the transaminases and leading to drug cessation, whereas ambrosentan uh, doesn't seem to do that. And so you have to check LFTs monthly for bosentan, not for ambrosentan. But anyway, to get back to the ambition trial, the combination of Tadalafil and ambrosentan up front was compared to initiating either one alone with placebo and then at, this was a so-called event-driven trial where they looked at a reduction in a combined endpoint uh, consisting of a variety of events, including death, but also a deterioration clinically, uh, the need for transplant, the need for escalation of therapy, and so forth. And they showed a 50% reduction in the occurrence of events over the average roughly two years of the trial, and they also showed a, a pretty robust improvement in, in six-minute walk distance after the first, I believe, six months, and uh, 
the improvement in, in walk distance was substantially greater than with either drug alone. So what they showed was that by combining these drugs up front rather than waiting for the response to the single drug and adding on later, they slowed the progression of disease more effectively and brought about a greater initial improvement in functional capacity. So I think we're starting to see people using this approach more, more upfront dual therapy. And the guideline committees have not caught up with this yet because this is new information. So, you know, we'll have to see once they have an opportunity to go over the evidence, these guideline committees, uh, and, and see what kind of recommendations come out. But in the meantime, we have started a number of patients with dual therapy, and uh, the insurance companies in general have been covering uh, the drugs. Uh, that, that would be a very limiting factor if we couldn't get insurance coverage, but, but we are having some success with that. So that's been, a, I believe, a paradigm-shifting clinical trial where it moves the initiation of combination to the upfront of therapy initiation rather than waiting and, and adding on later on. And by the way, Massey-Tentan is the new player in the endothelin receptor antagonist field. And it, like ambrosantan, is a once-a-day agent that has minimal liver toxicity, does not require monthly liver function testing. And it was approved on the basis of a trial. Uh, it was actually the first one that used this, that reported with this event-driven design and it showed a 43% reduction in events compared to a combination of patients on uh, just a placebo comparison or a background therapy, usually sildenafil, uh, in about two-thirds of patients in addition to uh, a placebo for the Massey-Tentan. So that also was a, an exciting finding, and uh, whether Massey-Tentan is a better drug than Ambrosantan is unclear because they were studied in different ways. I think most people would agree that this event-driven design is probably a preferable clinical trial design to the traditional six-minute walk distance test after 12 or 16 weeks. But because Ambrosantan wasn't tested in the same way, it, it's impossible to say whether one is the drug is actually better or not. Well, this was... Uh, wonderful, and I would love to let you go, but I have one <laughs> further question. Is there any expectation that uh, the approved medication will be effective in the multiple other causes of pulmonary hypertension uh, related to primary lung disease, left heart failure, or are, are, are these... Uh, medications in the classes we've been talking about really to be focused in that group one idiopathic and uh, connective tissue disease uh, related pulmonary hypertension. Well, that's that's another, you know, $64 million question. Yeah, that's a, the a, next a, two hours. <laughs> it's a great, great question. I, I did want to get in there at some point, the idea that we welcome these new drugs. Pulmonary hypertension has been a big therapeutic challenge, and people are still dying with it, even though I think we are keeping people alive longer, and the estimate is maybe the average survival is up to maybe 
six years, whereas in the 1980s, when the NIH registry reported outcome data, it was slightly under three years on average. So I think we're doing a lot better now than we were then. But if you're the average patient who's, say, a woman age 50 who's otherwise reasonably healthy, and uh, you're looking at six or seven years of more of survival, you're not going to be too happy, and caregivers are not too happy, and we need new drugs. But the more options we have and the more we learn about how to combine them to get greater efficacy, the better we're going to do. So, you know, we're very excited about having these, these new choices, and we're still working on exactly where they fit in. But with regard to the other classes, which is what your question is about, one thing I, I didn't mention uh, is that the Rio Siguat, the trade name being Adempus, is the first drug that was approved for a non-group 1 indication on the basis of the CHEST trial, which was on patients with chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, CTEF, which is group 4 in the World Symposium classification. And these are people who just have clot that collects in their lungs over time and gradually increases the resistance to flow, leading to a progressive and ultimately fatal form of pulmonary hypertension. Uh, it's important to know about this and never miss it because some of these people are amenable to surgery and the preferred therapeutic approach is to remove the clot surgically if they have severe disease and, and functional incapacity, and you can cure people that way. So, you know, we always keep that in mind as option number one, but there are people who are not surgical candidates or others who go through surgery and don't have a good therapeutic outcome, and those are the ones that we treat with uh, this drug, Rio Siguat, which is now approved based on that chest trial for the therapy of, of these CTEF patients. And the reason I think that this drug is effective is, is that in these CTEF patients, probably related to the very high pressures the more distal vessels are exposed to, they have secondary changes in their vasculature that looks very much histologically like what you see in patients in group one with idiopathic or connective tissue disease related. And that's probably why they respond to uh, drugs like Rio Siguat, and they probably respond to the other, many of the others as well, although they haven't been studied as much. And some of the trials, there was one on Vizentan that did not show an improvement in six-minute walk distance uh, that was performed a number of years ago. So we're very excited to have Rio approved for the group fours. The other groups, we don't really know. Uh, group twos, we see probably more of them than any others, and those are the ones who have high filling pressures, in the left ventricle that's responsible for the high pressures in the pulmonary circulation. And they can have systolic dysfunction or diastolic dysfunction or valvular disease. There is a little bit of evidence to suggest that PDE5 inhibitors may be beneficial in some of these patients, but there's very little evidence to guide us with our PAH drugs. And I, I don't think we should be using them routinely, and we need to focus on treating their volume overload, their systemic hypertension, their sleep apnea, the other comorbidities that they tend to get. But we need drugs to treat, especially the diastolic heart failure patients. Uh, we don't really have a specific agents that have been convincingly been shown to be effective. And then, 
you can say the same thing about group threes, the people with parenchymal lung disease, uh, sleep apnea, chronic hypoxia. Again, we don't have the evidence to show that we're effective using these drugs in those kinds of patients, even when their pressures are fairly high, although admittedly people will try them empirically. And then in group five, you really have a mishmash of different etiologies. You've got glycogen storage diseases, sarcoid, some of the hemolytic diseases, sickle cell, and so forth. And so there are a lot of different mechanisms represented, and probably no one therapy is going to be effective in there. And, you know, that's a grab bag ripe for clinical studies uh, so that we can understand, you know, how best to treat some of those. So what do you do with the uh, cardiac left diastolics? I mean, I, I probably get five people a week sent to me. By yep. Well, uh, in, in a nutshell, as I said, we, we, we will cast probably most of them if they get referred to us because that's kind of why they get referred to us. But I, I would say in real life, uh, you probably don't have to cast all of them unless there's a suspicion that they have what used to be called disproportionate, but now right. it's called severe pulmonary hypertension. But uh, it, it is the diastolics we tend to see, and you know the, the term is now HIFPIF, uh, heart failure with a preserved ejection fraction. Ooh, I love it. And so there are some who have a, a passive elevation in the pressures, and people have argued about how to define that. In the past, it's been the transpulmonary gradient, which is the mean PA minus the wedge, and uh, that's supposed to be less than 12 or 15, depending on who you read. And if it was more than that, then we would say it was disproportionate, and uh, we should consider adding something like a PD-5 inhibitor. More recently, the World Symposium decided that it should be the diastolic pressure gradient, and the reason for that is when you think about it, if there is precapillary structural change with increased resistance, then the decay of pressure elevation in the pulmonary circulation should be slower, and you should have an end systolic gradient, or a, a, rather a diastolic gradient, um, and they've used the number seven to differentiate. So if your PA diastolic pressure minus wedge difference is greater than seven, then that means you have uh, what they're calling combined disease with a precapillary component and a mm. postcapillary component. Interesting. Now that's kind of murky too, because the studies that are coming out, we we just had published something in uh, Jack Heart Failure on this. The, the DPG is not very good at predicting outcomes and doesn't seem to correlate with much. And I think the problem is, you know, the measurements are so variable for both PA diastolic pressure and for wedge. You know, you often end up with negative numbers, and uh, it's not a very yeah, yeah, the wedge. I wish the wedge was a better, yeah. <laughs> better so, test than it is. So we, we've recently looked at uh, the, the pulmonary artery compliance, which is the stroke volume divided by the pulse pressure. And so it, it, in a way, it is how stretchable your, your arteries are. Mm. And, and when people mm. have advanced left heart disease, the high filling pressures kind of pre-fill the pulmonary vessels. They're they're kind of stretched, and when the right ventricle ejects into them, 
there's little stretchability left, and so the pressure shoot up, and, and it really throws the right ventricle for a loop. You know, it can't handle that, that big pressure load. You know, it likes to have vessels that are very compliant and will accommodate most of the stroke volume with minimal increase in pressure. All of a sudden, it ejects and the pressures just shoot up and it's got to you know, work hard to get to squeeze out the blood and it goes into failure. Uh, so that, the PAC or the pulmonary arterial compliance seems to correlate best with outcomes in our work. But it, it doesn't help us too much in terms of therapeutic agents because we, we don't have things that improve pulmonary arterial compliance directly, at least that we know about. And uh, so it, it remains a therapeutic quandary. When I have patients with very high PA pressures, I sometimes will empirically put them on a PD-5 inhibitor. And anecdotally, some of these patients seem to do better. Uh, Is there a study or studies coming out looking at diastolic yeah, failure well, in the PD-5? They've done a, a fair number. Virtually all of them have been negative. Uh, there are some studies done by... Uh, Guazi, G-U-A-Z-Z-I, and there are two Guazis. I don't know what the relationship is, but one's in Italy and one's in Texas. And they've done these relatively small studies using PD-5 inhibitors, and they did one on diastolic heart failure and showed dramatic improvements, but nobody's been able to replicate that. And so whether, in fact, they're useful or not, I don't know for sure. So the, the main therapeutic approach is, you know, give them diuretics and get their filling pressures down, keep their systemic blood pressures under control, consider that many, if not most, of these patients are going to have sleep apnea and look for it and treat it. You know, a lot of them will do better. For many of them, uh, obesity is, is really the main problem. You know, we see this in especially, you know, the morbidly obese, and they get a, a lipotoxicity of their heart. They get actual infiltration of the heart by adipose tissue, which changes the structure of the heart and makes it stiffer. And and so if they could lose 150 pounds or something, that probably would pretty much cure the disease. But you, it's it's virtually impossible to make those people lose weight and keep it off. Well, I think we have all enjoyed our time with Dr. Hill, and I, I want to make sure everybody knows that Dr. Hill is Professor and Chief of the Pulmonary and Critical Care Division uh, at Tufts University Medical School and a former uh, president of the American Thoracic Society. So this, for me, has been a great honor to spend this time and have Nick share his expertise with us. So uh, this is Dr. Alan Fine for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society, wishing you all a great rest of your day, whatever you're doing.